What's going on, everybody? This is Rafiki, and welcome to Paraviti, Viti, a podcast that will take you to the West Indies and beyond with powerful short stories written by yours truly. Here, we will also dive into the history, culture, and literature of the region I call home and the parts of the world that help build it into what it is today. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Power BT, episode 12. Um, I feel like this one is kind of important because I know I'm a day late, um, but I don't think I'm a dollar short because two days ago, at the time I'm recording this, is Grenada's 49th um, anniversary of independence um, as a nation, as of being, you know, freer from British colonial rule. I think that people you know, depending on your opinion and my opinion, you know, um, I think there's still things that need to be done when it comes to completing decolonization. Um, but technically as of February 7th, 1974, the island, the tri-island state of Grenada, Karakou and Petite Marnique was made independent into its own country. And so, um, on February 7th, two days ago from now, um, that marks 49 years of independence. So I always like to celebrate Independence Day for all, you know, Caribbean countries, you know, for all colonial states. I like to celebrate them. But of course, this one is near and dear to my heart with my my, my mother's family being from Karakou, which is part of, you know, Grenada's, you know, economic and political system. So happy Independence Day to my fellow Grenadians, my kayaks my petite Martinicans, um, another year around of being an independent country. And I think that's something to celebrate. And I'm excited to see what Grenada and its sister islands accomplishes, even though I'm all the way in the United States. So I just wanted to add that. I felt like it was a good segue because I wanted to talk about an organization that is very small and kind of like myself, it is a extension of Grenada's culture, Grenada's, you know, history, and I would say, like, footprint here on the globe, and it's actually based in New York City, where I am, where I'm from, um, and this organization is called Big Drum Nation. It was founded by Winston Fleury, the cultural ambassador of Grenada, the famed big drum practitioner, who is said to have brought the big drum dance to the world and performed it for um, the Queen of England and for the United States um, president at one point in time. And while he did this in a theatrical sense, one of the lasting effects that he left on, I would say, like Caribbean culture, specifically Grenadian culture, was founding Big Drum Nation. So Big Drum Nation is essentially a nonprofit organization that is focused on spreading Caribbean culture um, from different parts of the region, whether you know, the language spoken in said region might be Spanish or Creole, French, English, so on and so forth. It is essentially um, an example of a conglomerate made to help push Caribbean culture, Caribbean art, Caribbean research. And so I like to, you know, share this information with people who might be writers, who might be artists, um, who might be researchers and educators and feel like they have something to contribute to Big Drum Nation because we want to essentially be a, a springboard to help spread the word about work that people are doing as part of our Caribbean dias diaspora. 
So while it is founded by a Grenadian person, it is open to all Caribbean people um, with the focus being Caribbean work. I myself have been a part of this organization for about a year now. And I actually wrote a piece on Karaku last April, specifically focused on, as you might guess, Karaku's Big Drum Dance. So I'm including a link to Big Drum Nation to the website um, in the show notes of this episode for you guys to all check out. And I encourage any of you who might be writers, any of you who might be artists, educators, researchers to, you know, contribute some work to the to the website, to the blog. And if you're simply interested in this kind of information, I, I implore you to check it out. We also have a LinkedIn page as well. You can find us at Big Drum Nation on LinkedIn. Um, and feel free to follow to stay updated on the things that we're doing. Spread the word. Um, and let's just continue to spread Caribbean culture as far as we can. So I wanted to mention that um, before really getting into today's episode. I'm really excited to talk about um, certain topics, specifically jab jab i think the theme for this for today's episode is to really focus on grenada as a whole because while i have you know obviously drawn inspiration from karaku's big drum dance and shown how these different ethnic groups which are present in karaku and in other parts of the diaspora function i felt like given grenada's independence day this week given the mention of big drum nation which was founded by a man from grenada figured I'd stay in the Grenadian theme. So I want to talk about Jab Jab as well as a um, Grenadian myth or mythical creature that is based off of a real creature called um, the Tet Chien. So we're going to get into that today before getting into today's um, big drum dance song and inspired story. So when I mentioned Jab Jab, I know most of you, unless you're from Grenada or Trinidad or, you know, Caracu or Petite Martinique, you may not be familiar with what Jab Jab is, but you probably are familiar with Carnival. So all of the Caribbean islands, we have our own forms of Carnival. Some of them happen at similar times as one another. Others happen at different times of the year. So Trinidad's Carnival is very famous, also known as Juve. Um, and in Grenada, because of Grenada's proximity to Trinidad, we also call our Carnival Juve. Um, but in different countries, such as Barbados, it is known as Krapova. In Guyana, we call it Mashramani. Um, and there's just different names and different times that this thing is, that this holiday is celebrated. In the Bahamas, they call it Junkanu. And listen, I saw the, like, I guess they had this trailer that they put together for um, Junkanoo in the Bahamas, given the fact that Carnival these last few years has been shut down um, because of COVID, because of the pandemic. And I wanted to put a Bahamian flag in my bio because the way people were getting on and doing their thing, people were dressing like they were in the you know what um, Black Panther movie. It was awesome. But to really talk about Jab Jab and to talk about Carnival, Carnival is essentially an expression of our identity as Caribbean people. Um, it is a holiday that celebrates, you know, independence and also ind- indigeneity um, in our African roots as Caribbean people all throughout the West Indies. And so when I talk about Jab Jab, Jab Jab is unique um, because of how different it is compared to most carnival celebrations. So when you think of carnival, even in Brazil, for example, you know, people dress up 
and they wear these bright, you know, beautiful costumes with a lot of feathers and decorations. And Jab Jab is essentially the obvious. So what you would call in Grenada or maybe even Trinidad, what you would call the beautiful costumes when people dress up and look very pretty, you would call that pretty mas. And I've heard some people, because Jab Jab is the opposite, you will call that Dutty Mas or Jab Jab. Um, and Jab Jab is so unique that it even has its own um, genre of soca music. So, of course, many of you might be familiar with dance hall and reggae, but when it comes to carnival and the different ways that it shows up and is celebrated, a lot of the music that is played is known as Calypso or soca. Um, and so soca has its own musical influences from the East Indies, from different African, you know, um, music backgrounds. And it really came about within Trinidad and kind of spread throughout the Caribbean as um, the genre became more popular and is heavily associated with carnival and all of its different forms, whether you're in Trinidad, Barbados, Grenada, so on and so forth. But just, like I said, Jab Jab is unique because it is not pretty the way people think of carnival. And instead of dressing up in these bright feathery costumes with a bunch of colors, people who play masquerade, Jab Jab, they actually cover their bodies in what used to be molasses, sometimes oil. This this paste that people put on their bodies, sometimes people will use black paint, is to make their skin black. And the term Jab Jab comes from the French patois that was spoken and that is still spoken by a lot of old people. I shouldn't say a lot, but I, by a few old people. It comes from the French patois word diab, which means devil. And there's a lot of ideas about where Jab Jab came from, how it came about. I actually wrote an article about this in 2019, and I'll also include this link in the show notes. But there are some ideas that Jab Jab came from the fact that the Europeans obviously saw their enslaved African counterparts as demonic. We've known that there was even a, a point in time where people calculated your sin based on the color of your skin. And the darker your skin, the more sinful you were. And so, therefore, they demonized black people as a whole because our skin is naturally darker. And so, people saw black people as the devil, as demonic, and this is kind of where it comes from. But the enslaved Africans of Grenada and Trinidad because it's argued where Jab Jab really started. Some would say Grenada, some would say Trinidad. Of course, me, I'm Grenadian, so I'm going to say Grenada. Um, I'm not ashamed to be biased in that way. But it is argued that the enslaved Africans essentially played in the European slave masters' faces and they acted like devils to essentially be a mirror of how the Europeans themselves acted. Um... But there's also a story that I had seen when I was researching this years ago where Maroons, so enslaved Africans who would become free, they were attacking plantations and burning them to the ground, burning the crops, trying to disrupt, you know, the machine that was um, slavery within the West Indies. And so when they would burn these crops, the enslaved Africans who were still on the plantation were oftentimes forced by their slave owners to run into the burning fields, like burning sugarcane fields, burning tobacco fields, and try to salvage as many crops as they could um, so they could replant and, you know, not lose as much money. And of course, running into a burning field, people died, many people died, 
and those who survived had horrible burns, were extremely disfigured. Um, and so the European slave owners would make fun of them. So the idea of dressing up and putting on like um, a horned helmet and making your skin black as can be with paint and molasses and oil, um, it serves many different purposes. It is to mock the Europeans who saw us as demonic and saw us as devils and to essentially pretend to be the devil in their face. And that way they would not realize that we were being a reflection of them. It is also to highlight the burned skin of the ancestors who died. So in a way, Jab Jab is also seen as a, an act of ancestral veneration. Um, and then I think last but not least, you know, the horns. Horns in African culture are not necessarily symbols of something demonic or evil. There are many horn gods. Um such as Legba. So when we think of Legba in Haitian Fodun, he's an old man, but Legba in West Africa, specifically amongst the Fon and Ewe people of what is now Benin, of what is once Dahomey, he is actually a young man with large horns um, and other like sexual features, essentially. Um, and so I say all this because when I wrote my article about Jab Jab, I wrote it about potentially the the spiritual remnants that might be present within the jab jab tradition and i personally have always wanted to partake in jab jab um sometimes i think about going to carnival that they have here in new york city and maybe i'll be the only jab but i think that would be really fun to just show up for grenada and i think that it is a beautiful tradition that people when they see photos of it and they do not know what it is, they get scared, but it is something with such a rich history that you will find in Grenada and in Trinidad. And I have seen in different soca songs, specifically Jab Soca, where Grenada is called the land of a hundred thousand jabs. And there are some of my favorite soca artists, they are jab soca artists, they're from Grenada, they're from Trinidad. Um, and I'm actually gonna play a song by Mandela Lynx about Jab Jab, and I'll even play another one by them if I can. So maybe it's just me. I decided 
if I keep if I keep playing music, if I keep playing soca music, I'm never gonna finish recording. Um, but maybe it's just me. I love soca music. I love jab jab soca. Um, that song especially. That's a war song, you know. I I can't even imagine if Grenada were to go to war with somebody and play. And this is probably me being a writer. Um, just imagine what that could be in a fantastical sense because war in reality is quite horrible. But just imagining not even knowing what kind of people you're de- dealing with. Because if, if I see an army running at me, dress up like Jab Jab with horns and, and black paint and all them type of thing there, I will be freaking out. And with a theme song like that, everybody should be afraid of Grenada. And I'll even throw Trinidad in there too. But that is essentially what makes Carnival in Grenada and in Trinidad so unique, what makes Juve so unique, that mix of African culture, European culture, specifically the French, and how we have once again taken something that's meant to destroy us, something that's meant to demonize and hurt us, and made it into something to celebrate, something that is beautiful. I know that Jab Soka is also very popular, I believe, in St. Lucia. I met a man who was St. Lucian, and we were just talking about soca music for hours because he was helping me with something. Um, but yeah, I I'm, I love Grenada's brand of music. I love Jab Soca, and I'm just so proud to be part of this culture, you know, about of the, part of this regional culture and part of this specific culture um, that is, you know, within this island. But that is only part of the, the cultural tradition that I wanted to talk about today. The next thing I want to speak about is the myth of the Tetxian. And this is essentially a flying snake. Um, and so the Tetxian is one of a few species of snakes um, in Grenada. That's also in Karakou, I, and I believe even in Petite Martinique. And it is a boa constrictor, if I'm not mistaken. And so obviously the idea of Snakes in a lot of cultures, especially when we look at Christian culture, because there is a culture that is around Christianity, snakes are seen as evil, they're seen as, you know, demonic, um, symbolizing the devil, and things like that. But there's this pushback on that version of how snakes are viewed because of traditional African religion. And so when I say that, I think of specifically Dambala in Vodun, whether it's in West African Vodun or in Haitian Vodun. And for those who do not know, Dambala is essentially the great serpent um, that is present within the Vodun pantheon. And so um, specifically in Grenada and Karakou, Tetshen is essentially a flying snake that is said to be able to um, take flight. And I think this myth comes from the, the fact that this boa constrictor actually jumps from branch to branch when it is moving through the canopy. Um, it's very hard to see, um, and it blends in naturally to the foliage. But it's just interesting to see how people interact with snakes, and I think as African-descendant people, how we interact with snakes, because according to our traditional cultures, snakes are not necessarily something to be feared. But naturally, because of our, you know... Our, our presence in the diaspora, our interaction with Christianity, we have naturally taken on different attitudes about serpents and about snakes. I used to always want a snake as a pet. Um, I always wanted a snake as something I 
truly loved. I used to think snakes were really cool. I'm not the biggest fan of them now. I'm honestly indifferent. As much as I wanted a snake, my dad would never let me get one because he hated snakes. And he's from Guyana. I could have sworn he told me a story when I was a kid about how when it would rain, sometimes the anacondas would come up from the swamp um, onto the farm that his family had. I could be wrong about that, but that's just something I recall hearing as a kid. Um, and so obviously anacondas are huge. It makes sense for people to be afraid of them. But if we bring it back to Karaku, um, the Tet Shen, which, as I said, is a tree boa, um, refers to the way that its head resembles that of a dog. And this is because the word Shen in French um, means dog. And obviously at the time, French Creole or, or Patois in that sense was spoken longer than any other language and so it is said that according to the myth that the Tet Shen can fly through the air um, and that this belief as stated before may have roots in the way that snakes launch themselves from tree branch to tree branch. Um, this snake and other snakes are also accused of sneaking into houses and stealing milk from nursing mothers um, and there's actually a story um, on this website called Anthropology News where a man talks about an encounter that he had with an unspecified snake that caused a tree to die, which is kind of interesting when you think about how in the Bible, um, in like the, the tree of life and being in the Garden of Eden, how the devil appears to Eve as a snake when they're eating the forbidden fruit. So I'm curious if this story is inspired by that or if this story has some deeper, maybe African root. The story was recorded in 1984. And essentially, this man said that he had encountered a snake and it caused a tree to die. So the story simply is told from the man's point of view. He says one day, his he and his brother went to the hill um, and they went to look after some cows. And after they went to watch the cows um, and other animals and give them water, they brought them back to the farm and tied them up to feed them. They were on their way back home and they were walking down a hill through a pasture when they saw a snake. So naturally, him and his brother ran up to the snake with a cutlass, which is a machete, to kill it. Um, but the man speaking, he did not see the snake. His brother saw it, so his brother told him to look out and be aware for the snake. Um, and so... As the man turned around to look at the snake, his brother had killed it. And that's when he heard something like whiz by his ears. And he saw that it was a piece of the snake because his brother had chopped it with the machete. So now they go and they turn around and look and they see that it's a big tree standing by them. And in, in Karaku, this is called a mapu, which is a silk cotton tree. And I don't want to get distracted, but silk cotton trees are famous in the Caribbean, especially in places like Jamaica and Guyana for being, Guyana especially, for being very haunted. Um, they they have a lot of symbolism for different people, um, but without getting too distracted, essentially the snake is killed and there is a silk cotton tree. And um, the head of the snake flew into the tree um, and its teeth, you know, the teeth of the serpent stuck into the tree's bark and like it was biting the tree. Um, and so the man tried to to cut the snake's head from the tree but the snake's head would not come off and so they keep digging they keep digging and the the snake finally comes off of the tree 
um, and they watch the tree, they, they check on it, they see that it has bite marks inside of it. And supposedly, after a week, the tree dies. All of the leaves start to fall off the tree and it starts getting very sickly. And after the span of a month, everything falls out. Now, this is very interesting because um, these snakes within Karaku are not poisonous at all. But the person telling the story is insinuating that the snake, this this Tetshen, or a green boa constrictor, um, somehow poisoned the tree after its head was severed and the teeth of the snake entered the bark of the silk cotton tree, the mapu. Um, and so it's just a very interesting story, the idea that snakes, even after death, are very dangerous, very harmful. Um, and since then, that person says they never go around snakes ever again, even ones that are not poisonous. So just interesting traditions within Karaku, within the broader Caribbean, not only about carnival, but about how we view certain animals. And when we think about animal stories, we know that these things come from many different cultures, um, but specifically in the context of the Caribbean, they come from our African ancestors. And I would even say those of us with indigenous Taino, Arawak, Carib ancestors, um, how these stories continue into the modern day as recently as 1984, which is quite some time ago, but still fairly recent when we look at you know, human existence. But I just wanted to talk about those things really quickly. I want to share um, today's big drum dance song, which is known as Amba Diabia, also known as Amba Diabla. Um, and I think there's a lot to talk about with this big drum dance song. And I want to share this recording um, before breaking it down and then narrating the short story I've written inspired by this song. Dab, no, dab, no, that means we take up some mud. No, mud on the plaster. No. That is your plaster, please. You 
can plaster you with a shove look. No, well, the old song, well, is the same. You, you make the song to the, to the, uh, to the, to the no, song, to the dog. Yeah, but what is the whole song tell about? You mean the, the nation of it? No, no, what is the meaning? Oh, is the meaning? No, it's very hard now to tell you the meaning. No? So in those two clips, um, the first one being the actual song and the second one being a recording with not only Mary Fortune, but an unidentified man. Um, I can't remember his name because his name is listed in another recording, but a seemingly unidentified man about the meaning of the song. I think there's a lot of nuance and a lot of discrepancy because the words Ambadabiae, essentially, based on what I can translate and compare to Haitian Creole, because obviously Haitian Creole is a widely spoken French-based um, Creole language, um, it differs um, greatly from what the interviewers say about the song, because Mary Fortune and this other man say that this song is about putting plaster on a house. And for those who don't know, plaster is a building material. You can use it to cover cracks and holes in different, you know, building structures. However, I think that this song, ultimately the meaning is lost. But when you compare it to Haitian Creole, the, the phrase actually sounds like Amba Diabla E. And when we look at it in that way, that means the devil below. Now, we know that this song has been categorized as a Cromanti Nation song. Not sure why, it just is. We know that a lot of music in terms of African traditional religions are not always explicitly about praising a god or praising a different spirit, but many times they just talk about life. And so I believe that this song, while being associated with the Cromanti, I think that because of maybe its its presence, when people are singing it, people might be working on something, or it may truly be used to describe putting plaster on a house, I think it does have this connotation of the devil below. And I believe that that is not clear because Grenada's patois, um, including Karaku in this case, and Petite Martinique, because Grenada is so far from Haiti and so far from St. Lucia, people who have studied the French Creole in Grenada and compared them to these other islands have noticed that the dialect is actually quite different. It is distinctly different. So much so that Haitians, when they speak about their language, they say Creole, and you can hear the R sound. But in Grenada, when the word Creole is used to describe this language and not Patois, it is simply said as Kale. So the R sound is dropped. And I believe that this dialectal difference is why... Um, it sounds the way it sounds, but why it actually means literally the devil below. And maybe at one point in time, um, in my own interpretation, based off of what I've seen from other people researching this tradition um, in the 1980s, 1970s, and even prior, such as Alan Lomax in this recording, I believe that this song has a deeper meaning. It could potentially be about working about a house but it potentially had this spiritual connotation about the devil below, maybe the devil being below the house. Um, and I think that the way Creole and Patois functions, 
it is the languages are very good at saying the most amount of things in the least amount of words. That's kind of the beauty of Patois, the beauty of Creole. So I think that a lot has been lost over the course of time, over the course of the change in language. And this is evident in the fact that even at the time that this is recorded, which is 1962, the exact meaning of the song is not clear. So that's kind of the 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 conclusion I came to about what the song means. And so I have used that as inspiration for the story that I'm now going to narrate titled The Devil Below. So once again, thank you for coming this far. Thank you for listening to everything I've shared. I want to once again add the disclaimer that these stories I am narrating are works of fiction. They are not the origins of this traditional religion. They're not the origins of these cultural songs. As I said, these stories are inspired by these traditions. They are inspired by these songs. Um, and I do not want you to conflate the two. So once again, please share this show, leave a review, um, and sit back, relax, and enjoy. Thank you. Virginia's old face was set in a deep frown as she waddled up to her house at the top of the steep road. Her nutmeg skin was set in a determined expression, her frown only deepening at the sound of her sister's voice. Rosalind, who was also elderly, lagged behind Virginia. She cursed under her breath as her older sister continued to scurry away, confused at how her thin legs could manage to carry her so far, so fast. Virginia, Rosalind yelled, don't go and lock yourself up in the house. Virginia shut her left eye as she felt the drop of sweat that had been crawling down her brow grow near. She wiped it away and sighed with relief as she approached the rusty gate of her yard. Her house has, had just been repainted a bright blue with a white trim to highlight the edges, leaving only the gate to be redone. Virginia rolled her eyes in annoyance as she waited for her sister to finish walking up the road. She watched with contempt as Rosalind clutched at her heart, pausing for a moment before slowly walking forward until she was only a few feet away. Virginia, Rosalind huffed. Virginia raised a leathery hand. Give yourself a chance before you try to speak. I'm surprised you made it all the way up here with your heart. I know you want me dead, but you'll have to wait until God Almighty is ready to strike Madone. Rosalind sucked her teeth. Virginia, don't lock yourself up in the house. Tonight is the tombstone feast for Glenrick. Three years ago today he passed. It is time and everyone I go be there tonight. I was there at the funeral. I paid my respects. Virginia reached into her purse and took out the key for the gate's lock, her hand shaking ever so slightly. Rosalind shook her head. You go to England and forget where you come from. You forget where you was born and raised and where you go be buried. Hmm? You forget that is your sister too? Enough, Rosalind. Rosalind sucked her teeth again. You're such a nasty woman when you get ready, Virginia. You go to England and you think just because you're there in the backward yard that you're better than we? You see the Bajan you was from small. Virginia threw open the gate and turned on her sister, fire blazing in her eyes. Why you don't shut your stink mouth and go join them people down the road? Why you don't stop vexing me? Rosalind's eyes widened in shock and she stepped backwards. They, her eyes glistened with tears, but the edges of her lips turned up in a smile. So now you remember how to curse like the rest of us. That's the only language you understand, Virginia said flatly, slipping back into the English that hid her ethnic origins. 
Rosalind cast her sister a final glance as Virginia ascended the short staircase to the house's front door before vanishing inside. Dismayed, she waited patiently for a bus to take her back down to the house of the deceased. Virginia watched bitterly from her bedroom window as her sister climbed into the small bus, turning away as a puff of smoke from its exhaust kicked it into motion. Undressing with a sigh, Virginia scratched her graying afro and prepared herself for a quick bath. The cream-colored tiles of her bathroom glistened with water, and she sat on the edge of the tub, holding onto the handle she had installed with one hand and scrubbing herself with a soapy sponge with the other. Water sloshed from the bucket at her feet as she plunged the sponge within. Her frown only grew as she thought about the water that used to run so freely in England, independent of the amount that fell from the sky into the tanks above Karaku's houses. Drying and dressing herself, Virginia stared at her reflection as she braided her hair into loose, unevenly length plates. Platts. Her face and Rosalind's were nearly identical, and they stood at the same height. Despite their shared looks, however, they were not twins, and their personalities were worlds apart. Where Virginia was formal and polished, Rosalind was casual and boisterous. Where Rosalind was sharp and cunning, Virginia was timid and cautious. Their differences sparked fight after fight, and although they had gone to London together with their husbands, Virginia never visited Karaku like her sister had. She had tried to run away from the pain the island had bestowed upon her, the lashes of poverty, struggle, and loneliness that only she seemed to feel, but somehow the island had pulled her back to it. Virginia slowly turned on the lamps in each room as the sun began to set, turning on her radio to capture the late gospel hymn, hymns of the night. As she made herself a simple dinner, sardines and toast, her mind wandered to the assortment of food the rest of the village would be havering in memory of their deceased friend, Glenric. Her eyes could see the plates of chicken, mutton, pork, cuckoo, rice, and vegetables. Her nose could smell them too. Shaking her head free of the daydream, Virginia decided it would be best to go to bed early. Virginia did not stop to turn off any of the lights in the other rooms of her house as she headed to her bedroom. Groaning, she climbed under the silky white blankets and clasped her rosary between her hands. As she began to pray, the faint sound of drumming echoed in her ears. Her brow furrowed as she focused on her prayer, repeating it over and over until she did not miss a beat. Confident God had heard her voice, she rested the rosary down. Suddenly, the lights went out. Hello? Virginia asked. Who's there? Rosalind? Rosalind, this better not be one of your tricks. Virginia gasped as a slender, multi-legged figure crawled out from under her bed with inhuman speed into the shadow of her doorway before reappearing. Eight yellow eyes of different sizes blinked at her. Virginia squinted as she watched the figure step out from the doorway, stopping at the side of her bed before sitting down at its edge. It was close enough for her to identify as a man. I'll call the police if you don't leave, Virginia whispered shakily. The man laughed. Them people not coming from Hillsboro for you. You ain't know about the Sarka that happened for Glenrick. The whole place down there right now is celebrating life. I have been waiting for this day, Virginia. A chill ran down Virginia's spine at the mention of her name, and she picked up her rosary. 
clutching it against her chest. The man only chuckled. Gently, he took the rosary from her hands and spun it around his finger. You don't need these. You don't even believe in God. Yes, I do, Virginia detested. No, you don't. If you did, you would be much more afraid than you are right now. You know, Christian. Virginia's eyes steeled, and she spoke in a voice that she had learned in London streets, one that commanded respect. Who are you? The man's teeth flashed, dripping with a translucent yellow liquid. I am a Nancy. The Nancy everyone has just finished praying to for forgiveness. Everyone except you. I want you out my house. Your house? My house, Virginia yelled. Mine. Anansi chuckled. You really think you're better than everyone because you feel your home is abroad? Your sister was right about you. She might not have much to she name, but she has respect for all traditions and she roots. You should have followed the example she set. Virginia tried to move, but her body suddenly felt constricted. She screamed as hair-like strands of silk glimmered around her, slowly tying her in place as they subtly glinted in the moonlight. Anansi stood from the bed. Do you hear the song they're singing now? We are gone day. Virginia shuddered in fear as Anansi took her hand and lifted her from the bed. Her mind screamed as she fought to move, but her body could not, would not respond. Instead, she only heard Rosalind's young voice in her ears, translating the song like she used to when they were children. Amba Dabla means the devil below, Rosalind had said, pausing to break down the song. We are Gonde means, yes, I Gonde. Amba Dabla, Amba Dabla, Amba Dabla, Amba Dabla. Virginia merely sighed in defeat as Nancy carried her away into the darkness, never to be seen again. Well, everyone, that's all for today's story. Thank you for listening. I felt like the story was kind of short, and initially what I had written was not this, but I really like how this turned out. Um, I kind of you know, wanted to keep in line with the fact that we're still in the Chromanti collection. And that's something I forgot to mention earlier. And that's why I had Anansi represent the devil. You know, when it comes to African religions and how Christianity has viewed them, a lot of African spirits, if not all of them are viewed as demonic. But I think the one that would really be viewed as demonic would be Legba. When people think of Papa Legba, people view view him as the devil. Um, With the Yoruba religion, Ifa, um, Eshu is viewed as, viewed as the devil. Now, this connotation has not traveled to Anansi, but I let it be that way because of the fact that we're still talking about these Komanti Nation songs within Karakulu's Big Drum Dance. And so I figured, why not keep, you know, some of these reoccurring characters going? Because as I'm telling these stories and as I'm talking about this culture and this tradition, when I tell these short stories, I'm in a sense building a fictional world with certain characters specifically the the reoccurring characters being different 
spirits that are mentioned within this religious tradition because, you know, these stories that I'm narrating are made up. Um, so I hope you guys enjoyed the stories. I hope you guys enjoyed the brief lessons on Jab Jab, on La Tête Chien. Um, I think that's the first episode where I really talked about animal spirits within Karaku um, and within the broader Caribbean. But there are many different animal stories, not including Anansi's own because he is a spider, but many different animal stories that are part of the Caribbean literary you know, history or literary record, however you want to call that. And I just um, encourage you all to check out Big Drum Nation. Um, once again, I wanted to say happy Independence Day for any other Grenadian people who might be listening. Um, and if I did not say that this at the beginning of the recordings for this month, happy Black History Month for all of my Black people in the United States. I think Canada also has Black History Month at this time in February. Um, and so I actually have something planned to highlight Black History Month because this is a Caribbean podcast, of course. But one of the goals we have on top of sharing Caribbean culture and Caribbean inspired literature is connecting the broader African diaspora and then the larger world um, beyond that. So I have something planned for the remainder of Black History Month. It might even stretch into March, depending on when I get these things started. But I would like to have a few guest speakers. Um, So that is in the works. I hope you guys appreciate those things. And once again, please leave a review, share the show, listen to old episodes again, um, and subscribe to see all new episodes that will be coming your way. Thank you, and see you next week.